Somebody must know something out there. More than one person will know who it was. It's somebody we know, for sure. I reckon she knew her killer. I really do, eh? This is the second episode of Annette, a podcast exploring the mysterious death of 19-year-old teenager Annette Deverell. This four-part true crime series seeks to tell the story of a baffling case from 1980, which police have never been able to crack, leaving a heartbroken family craving answers. My name's Carla Hildebrandt. I'm a journalist at the Mandra Mail, the local newspaper in the West Australian coastal town of Mandra, an hour's drive south of Perth. The first episode recounted Annette's disappearance, her Saturday night bar hopping in town with friends, and the night she was last seen in September 1980, waving from inside a mystery panel van. Almost two years later, Annette's remains were found in bush not far from town. A gruesome, heartbreaking end to a young life that had barely begun. We shared the pain Annette's mother, Margaret Carver, feels every day, not knowing the circumstances of her daughter's disappearance and death, and her anger as the person or people responsible for Annette's death have walked free without consequence. In this episode of Annette, we delve deeper into the mystery and get to know Annette Deverell. From her family and her close friends, we learn about her life and how she faced more adversity as a young woman than some people experience in a lifetime. Please be advised, this episode does contain some coarse language. As a teenager, Annette Deverell was a social butterfly. Four decades later, her friends Barbara Kalesia and Charlene Anderson say they miss her dearly. She wouldn't hurt a fly. She's the friendliest person you'd ever come across. Heart of gold she was. All the guys loved her. Because <laughs> she's such a beautiful girl. Beautiful and fun-loving. She was happy and loved life. But things weren't all rosy in Annette's life. She experienced horrible things. Annette was born in Tasmania. Her biological father left home when she was just three years old. At 13, Annette moved to WA and settled in Mandra with her mother Margaret, stepfather Jim Carver, and her younger twin brothers, Michael and Malcolm. This was before Annette's youngest brother Jason was born, as Margaret remembers. My uh, late husband, his parents lived in Western Australia and he thought it'd be good for my father to come over here for the hot weather, so we moved over here. That was Jason, my youngest son's dad. He actually committed suicide. Annette's stepfather took his life in the coastal city of Geraldton, north of Perth. Annette's friend Debbie Thompson recalls the strain the shocking circumstances of Jim's death had on Margaret and her family. Oh, fucking horrible. I mean, news crews. Oh, just for Margaret, it was intolerable because she was pregnant with Jason. I remember the helicopters being over the house and everything because he was walking through the town or something strapped with gelignite to his body and he got to the outskirts of town and blew himself up. 
The Deverell family's anguish continued when Annette was 15. Her mother and her friend, Debbie Thompson, say Annette claimed that she'd been raped by a family friend, not much older than her, who was visiting them on holiday. Not long after the incident, her alleged attacker had died in a motorbike accident back home. Annette, pregnant with his child, continued to go to school and kept her pregnancy a secret from almost everyone. From the way her friends now tell it, back in those days you just got on with your daily life, no matter what awful struggles you faced. It wasn't like today with psychologists and support for mental health issues and victims of rape or sexual assault. Annette's friend Debbie Thompson says teenagers struggling with serious issues behind closed doors often felt alone and had little support. We all went through shit. Some of us went through it more than others. Do you know what I mean? There was a lot of things happening in third year high school. Annette kept the pregnancy a secret from everyone until her mother Margaret found out. I didn't know for a long time. I didn't know she was pregnant until she started to get sick and I said, when she was sitting on the bench, she told me, I said, well, why didn't you say something before? But she was, you know, so young and scared. Margaret supported her daughter through her pregnancy, and at 16, Annette gave birth in Pinjara Hospital, not far from Mandra. Her mother was by her side. She had a healthy baby girl. Debbie Thompson says she was the only friend Annette told her secret to at the time. She recalls the surreal day of the birth. In the morning for school, Margaret said, it's a girl, we named her Maria and she's four pound ten. And that was it. And Annette came home, school started again. Maria's name was changed by her adopted parents. Margaret has since connected with Annette's daughter, who is 43 and living in Western Australia with a family of her own. She saw the baby and she named it. Her adopted mum put two and two together and connected the birth of with Annette. She got in contact with me and... She's a lovely girl, part of the family. Margaret says Annette's daughter is a nurse, which coincidentally is what Annette always wanted to be. I think she'd like to know, you know, have it all put to an end, like we all do, but it goes on for all these years now. We have chosen not to name Annette's daughter. We spoke with the mother of two who said she did not want to be interviewed. She said she hoped there would be justice for the woman who gave her life. Margaret says Annette would have been a great mother. Oh, she was, because she used to dope about my son, Jason. She used to take him everywhere. She thought the world of him, pushing him into town. and Everything was for her little brother. Upon arriving in Mandra from Tasmania, Annette enrolled at Pujara High School, the only secondary college in the area. On first impressions, Barbara Kalisha remembers Annette being shy and reserved. She was a new girl after all, but she quickly showed everyone that she wasn't a pushover. Um, that's where I first ever met Annette when she first ever came and walked into class. I thought, oh, this poor girl is so shy. It's like, oh my God. So that's when I come, we come really close. Yeah, we just all mixed. Got on really good. One night down the bridge, Everyone's going, oh my God, she's so quiet, you know. And we said to Shane McQuaid, one of the gang, go and see if you can clean her up. Poor Shane. He walks up there and puts his arm around her and thinks, oh yeah. The next minute, wow, she scratched his face. You push her and she'll push you back, you know. So that's really, I think she started opening up to us a little bit more. Annette's friend Trevor Hewitt agrees she wasn't one to be messed with. Annette was a friendly, kind girl, but he says she wouldn't have done anything she didn't want to, 
like get into the panel van she was last seen in on that night she disappeared in 1980. Well, I think she'd claw your eyes out if, um, if it came to it. I sort of mean if someone tried to drag her in and they were local, they'd had bark off. Uh, I don't think she'd go anywhere she didn't want to without a fight. Um, so yeah, I think she had the spunk in her, if you know what I mean. Popular, pretty, um, in the upper echelons of the girls, you know, the, the tough chicks of the school. Because it used to be a lot about tough and who, and who you were hanging around with. She either knew them or there's more than one, I reckon, because I'm just, I just think she just bloody rip strips off them. If it was a case of just grabbing you, and she, she wouldn't go and be easy. Friends Tracy Glasson and Eugene White remember Annette as a pretty cool chick. She was very popular, pretty, and reasonably quiet. Probably one of the cool kids at school, if you want to say. You know that word. You know, at school there's the, the cool chick. Well, she was sort of like that, you know, the cool chick. Tracy Hickman, who was a year younger than Annette at school, remembers her standing out from the crowd. Annette was a one-of-a-kind type of girl. There was nobody else that looked like her, really acted like her. So she sort of stood out from everybody else. She was one of the real popular girls that a lot of us other kids sort of looked up to a little bit because she was so vibrant and sort of out there compared to a lot of the other kids. I remember she loved her silver jewellery. Um, she liked to put real bright coloured dyes in her hair. I remember that. Um, we're all, you know, all us other kids were all too scared to do that, but she wasn't. A bit of a rough diamond, I would say, yeah. For that to have happened to anyone but for her, I suppose people thought that Annette was a little bit indestructible, you know, because she was so, so tough, you know, so outright and all the rest of it. And you wouldn't have expected something like that to happen to her. Underneath that exterior, I think she was a really nice girl. She was always nice to me. She had no reason to be, but she was. Teenagers in the 70s made their own fun. This was the era before social media, before everyone had smartphones. Annette's friends, Eugene White, Debbie Thompson, Steve Anderson and Charlene Anderson, remember the mischief their group got up to around town. I suppose you could call us a bunch of scallywags. <laughs> you would go fishing and then um, there was a period as we got older, you know, we'd sort of all gather and we might have a few drinks on the foreshore or whatever and walk around. And then as we got older, we got a little bit worse, I think. Mm, did a bit more organised gallivanting, you could say. <laughs> we were with the Bogans, like we were with the black jeans and black t-shirt brigade, all of us, and of course flannel shirts. We're, we're kind of like the Mandra teenage in crowd, you know, all the kids, of the cray fishermen that are growing up and the old long-term residents that lived here, they were the next generation of Mandra kids coming through the ranks. I just drank and partied and drove <laughs> around town. Yeah, I just remember being drunk all the time. That's all we did. Oh, it's disgusting, this shit we drink to get drunk. <laughs> you know, you used to only be able to go around the town one way. And we used to do things like dare to go around the town the opposite way. We used to chase each other in cars. And Mandra's horrible now compared to what it was then. Charlene Anderson and her brother Steve Anderson say dating within Annette's group of friends was common. I suppose I went out with John and Trevor. What Trevor Hewitt for? <laughs> we all went out with each other. <laughs> Sounds like Bold and the Beautiful or something, doesn't it? And then they all married in the group as well, didn't they? 
See, I went to Kalgoorlie. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I would have been better off staying here. Yeah, I went to Kalgoorlie, so I was out of it all, but they all, they all married each other, all of them, like even Wendy and Brett. It was really weird, wasn't it, when you think about it? We're pretty sick teenagers, <laughs> all going out with each other. It was liberal, promiscuous days back then, you know? Early 80s, oh, it's still pretty free and loving sort of society. At that age, you might have a different boyfriend three a year. You might guys could have a different girlfriend every week, you know? Mm -hmm. That's the way it was. It was a lot more... I don't know how promiscuous everything is nowadays, but it wasn't, wasn't bad. It was good times back then. My pretty girls. Pub scene was great. <laughs> the pub, if you, if you keep your shit together long enough and stay at the pub on your own two feet long enough, you, you generally score a girl. <laughs> if you're lucky enough, you went home. Well, that's a bit what it was like. It worked both ways. It worked for the girls and the guys. The group of friends say while there might have been some poor behaviour, they pulled each other into line if someone was acting out, as Steve and Shelley Anderson explain. For legal reasons, we've censored a name mentioned. It was unwritten rules, you, don't, you never broke. No, you never... Like if, for instance, say some guy was... One of the group had too many and was getting a bit friendly with me, and I had a boyfriend, you know, then it would be like... Hey mate, think you need to get your act together, you're grovelling, slow down. Someone done the wrong thing, you know, the, crowd, the rest of the crowd wouldn't have anything to do with them. Uh, peer pressure, you, you know, they cold shoulder them. Yeah. You know, that guy was an idiot. In, in the end, he just got cold shouldered out and no one had nothing to do with him. You know? There's another one that couldn't handle drink, whatever else he took at the time, you know. He didn't do well on it. Other people could party all night, keep a smile on their dial. Never upset anyone, never hurt anyone. Just be nice about it all. Some people just get ugly by nature. When he was 12 years old, Annette's school friend Trevor Hewitt moved to Mandra from the neighbouring coastal town Rockingham. Like Annette, it didn't take him too long to make friends. Trevor describes the place and time as pretty wild. I came from a really strict school in Rockingham and came to Mandra and it tended to be pretty wild. Teachers didn't really um, have much control as far as where I was used to. I, my grades went from reasonably good to rock bottom in a year and a half, just through <laughs> catching up with the people I was mixing with. Um, yeah, pretty wild place. Yeah, we all sort of got into mischief. We'd ride our motorbikes around town and ride into town and ride to the midnight drive-ins. Trevor recalls the turf wars between teenagers from different towns. It didn't take too much to become involved in some kind of wild brawl. But the older guys used to war a fair bit. Didn't get on very well with the Varuna people. And they were just a bit older than them. And yeah, it was always sort of a blue on from somewhere. There was always seemed to be trouble in town. Very territorial, I think it must have been. But it didn't take much and then, yeah, out of the woodwork would come everyone. In fact, Annette's friend, John McCarthy, says he remembers Annette possibly being involved in an argument with a group of girls at the Boathouse Tavern the weekend before her disappearance. He doesn't remember who the girls were. We had the Boathouse Tavern, where I believed that she'd had altercations with a couple of girls on a Wednesday beforehand. The Boathouse, we used to jokingly call it the Blood House, because they used to have lots of brawls there. In this era, and in this particular social environment, Annette's friends weren't inclined to offer up much information to police. They found police intimidating. 
Trevor, for example, recalls a street fight in which he ended up being knocked over by a car driven by the person he was feuding with. Although he broke his leg, Trevor refused to cooperate with police. He refused to rat out someone he knew. For legal reasons, we've censored this person's name. Yeah, a broken leg and a um, bit of bark off here and there. Bark off here and a scar on my head there. Yeah, it broke my right leg. But, you know, we were all drinking and we were all... It was a pretty crazy place. Trying to extract information out of people back then was a bit like... For instance, I got run over. I wasn't going to take for anything because they wanted someone for assault. That wasn't going to happen. So I just wore it. So, you know, I was there. I was in it. They had no more to do with it than I did. I shouldn't have been there. And, like, I was the one going to send a hockey stick through each window. So um, the fact someone threw it at, it at the car missed, I thought, well, I'll get it. But he got me. Crazy days. So a lot of people around that could have been capable of doing anything. Trevor Hewitt agreed to take me to the area outside Mandra, where Annette's remains were found in July 1982, 21 months after her disappearance. Her body was apparently dumped in the bush and left to decompose. Only her skull and some bones would eventually be recovered. We don't know the exact location. Even Annette's mother Margaret says she doesn't know. Police say the remains were found by two trail bike riders just off Scarp Road, 12 to 15 kilometres from Pinjara. One of Annette's friends, who cannot be named for legal reasons, says they know the precise location because they know a suspect who was taken there by police. The area is about 30 minutes drive from the main street of Mandra, where Annette was last seen in September 1980. East of the Alcoa refinery and the Oakley Dam swimming hole, the terrain is hilly with dense Jarra forest. There are dirt roads and smaller bush tracks and creeks. My opinion is you wouldn't luck across this road. If something happened to Annette down in Mandra, how would they have lucked their way up to here? It, it's knowledge. Someone knows. The last time Annette was seen alive was close to midnight on Saturday, September 13, 1980. She wasn't in contact with her mother or friends after this sighting. There is a possibility she died that evening and her body was left in the bush shortly after. I wanted to see for myself the likelihood of someone who wasn't familiar with the area stumbling across this dirt road. The track has been widened since the 80s, but it still feels narrow. Someone unfamiliar with the area could have headed for the hills and ended up on Scarp Road. It's not impossible, but Trevor says it's unlikely. Someone would have had to know the area. Well, it's out up here. Who, who from out of Mandra would know this road's up here? Were there lights along here? <laughs> no, nothing. Still isn't. And like back when we were kids, the buses used to pass on Penny Road. It was just wide enough for two cars without hitting. So... You know, you imagine what this track was like. It was just wide enough for one. And then you were scratching the sides of the car. So for people to know of this track, I just feel they have local knowledge. I really do. And a lot of people do. Now you've been up here. You think you'd have found it? Trevor says the surrounding bushland was a popular spot for young people to have a swim, go shooting, fishing, driving, or to meet up for a drinking session. Scarp Pool is nearby, just off Scarp Road. Once we got our licences, we'd drive out up in the hills and a lot of us knew all the area up there, so that's what brings me to think someone local-ish knew the way around to go up Scarp Road. Annette's school friend, Eugene White, remembers regularly visiting the area with friends. We used to go to a little dam up behind Pinjarra Refinery. 
certainly um, the bush up there, people went to. You know, in summertime, you might all jump in some cars when, and you drive up there and go swimming or whatever. People used to go up there, you know, you go up there and party in the summertime and you go up there and swim. It was just a bit better than, or a bit different. Some locals even grew their marijuana there. They knew the area well, as Annette's friend Stephen Shelley Anderson explain. That's where we all grew our pot. You go up the hills, put some seeds in, you find a soak coming down at the side of a hill that would keep moist all summer. Well, that's the only other thing. Whoever did it was familiar with the country up there to know they could go up in there and hide it. It was someone who obviously so, did yeah, probably hunt. Could have been know. an accident. Could have been. been. I don't know. Accidents happen in the federal court. Well, and it. Yeah, we've discussed that over the years. It could have been something. I've been to the area where Annette Deverell's remains were found a few times in researching this podcast. There's no way to know if the person or people who left Annette's body in the bush were familiar with the area. But after going there and hearing from Annette's friends, it seems unlikely that someone could have reached that location at night, driving along those narrow bush tracks, not unless they were already familiar with the area. Over the years, friends have attempted to piece together what happened to Annette, trying to remember things that might help solve the mystery of September 1980. The questions haunt them. What happened in her final hours? Was her death premeditated or an accident? And who was the last person to actually see her alive? But after four decades, they don't feel any closer to the answers, Annette's friend Steve Anderson says. It was always a mystery, you know, what happened to her. Always a mystery. Anyone that was around in those days is somewhere between 55 and 60, you know. It's still a curiosity. No one's ever been brought to justice over it. They've got away with it. Clean as. The information that Annette was last seen waving to her friend from the back of a panel van kept friends guessing and wondering if she knew those people in the car. Locals would drive around town at night for fun, not necessarily going into the pubs, Annette's friend Trevor Hewitt says. Oh, look, there was um, people that just hung around town, drove around around town, um, but they weren't necessarily going to the pubs all the time. Like town used to be town, there used to be bog laps they used to call it. And guys would drive round around town all night. There'd be people driving around quite a bit up to a certain time. And not usually wearing seatbelts, as Annette's friend Barbara Kalija recalls. That back then the old cars that we had they had no seatbelts too, like and you didn't have to wear one if you didn't have one in the car, so we all made sure we got cars with no seatbelts in them. But you know, like back in the day it was wasn't as big as it is now, Mandra. Back then, it was still pretty quiet, you know. Annette's friend Eugene White has many questions. How could that? How could that happen? You know, and, and you you're helpless because you can't like you can't do nothing. But and you make it, and you wonder how or why she would get into a vehicle if what we know is true that she actually got into a vehicle on a panel van. I thought she was street smart enough to know the right people to go with and the wrong people. She wasn't a dummy so there must have been either some trust or another reason. I can't argue with this I've got to do what I'm told sort of reason. Did she know that person and she was confident enough in them and went with them? 
I don't know. And it made you think about, well, was she forced into it or willingly got in? Left, it left us sort of wondering why, how it, how it could happen. Nothing ever happens in that way. Not in those days. Barbara Kalija says a person known to Annette must have been involved, but she wonders if her death was an accident. I just don't know who would have a reason to go out and kill her. That's why I reckon it's like we're in the car, somebody's made a pass at her maybe, I don't know, and bang, and he's heard her too much and panicked, I don't know. But it's, it's just got to be somebody we know. But you just look at everybody, well, I really know you. <laughs> Every time I see Margaret, I see her walking in you know, the shops and that, and, and, and I think sometimes Margaret looks at me and I've got my kids or my grandkids and what goes through her head. You know, she could be doing the same as you now if it, nothing happened to her, you know. My heart goes out to Margaret, poor lady. I always say, whoever's done it, it could have been an accident that they accidentally killed her and they've panicked, I don't know. But it's somebody we know, for sure. Annette's friend Tracy Glasson has the same suspicions. Because everybody sort of knew everybody, and that's what, when this happened, we all thought, oh, we probably know who's done this. We probably know exactly who's done this, but it was never found out, so. Debbie Thompson, one of Annette's closest friends, clings to hope. It's all she has left of those younger days with Annette. Margaret gave me one of Annette's crosses. Fell out of the back of a ute in a jewelry box. Mm. I howled for months after that that I lost that. I was gutted, absolutely gutted. It was just a plain old cross to anybody else, but to me it, it meant the world. So a couple of photos I've got left, that's about it really. I don't stop thinking about it. I do anything to try and find out who it was mm -hmm. and, and to give Margaret some closure. She's just a good woman. She's had a hell of a lot. And for her to have closure now would be absolutely amazing. Really would. If it gets all dragged up again, it's no different for her. Trevor Hewitt says Annette's family, close friends and the community deserve answers. I think Annette would be pretty pleased that we're still kicking her name around, we're still talking about her and we're still looking for the person that done it. Thank you for listening to the second episode of Annette. In the third episode, we delve into the police investigation in the 1980s and reveal the challenges Detective Jeff Beeman faced when he reopened the files in 1999. Well, the struggle is, is resourcing because they had a major investigation going in Perth and they couldn't afford the resources to do anything more. There were also issues with the police culture. Well, I feel it now that I had to continue. Wish I could have got that further. And uh, I knew me, me days were numbered and so as a detective. You clash with people that were really the, they were supposed to be the go-to people. And we reveal evidence sitting in police storage that could potentially be tested for DNA. And it was um, human hair and blood. We hope this series will spark someone's memory or encourage witnesses with crucial information to finally come forward about what really happened that Saturday night in Mandra in 1980. If aspects of this episode have raised concerns for you, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you have information that can help police solve this case, contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. 
You can contact me, Carla Hildebrandt, by emailing annettpodcast at gmail.com and you can remain anonymous if you wish. 